which is the son of Red Bull. <laughs> Normally, I would have a drink or two when recording podcasts. But yes, here's what I want to talk about. So we're both active in on Telegram chats, and I have recently created this little shrine of Sega Corner for myself, where I just gush about my childhood and things that I haven't experienced before in terms of the Sega Saturn, and I haven't experienced enough in terms of the Sega Dreamcast. And you were one of the few who really stuck to that and not only wanted to talk about it, but you I felt like you generally knew what you were talking about. <laughs> and then we started talking privately, and you started showing me your own collection, and I realized, oh, dear God, I have such a long road ahead of me. It's a deep rabbit hole. Yes. <laughs> and that's... That's basically the overarching theme I would love to talk to you about on this podcast. It's just, it's it's so rare for me to find not a, not not a fellow you know video game player. That, that's that's easy. It's the fact of Sega, specifically Sega. So when that happened, it just clicked for me, and I felt immediately this is something I would want to talk about because one, you're knowledgeable in it, and two you care about it, and three, I can finally talk about Sega, which is which was the first console I ever got to own by myself. The first, the first two games that I ever played in my life was Super Mario Brothers and Mega Man 3. So the, the <laughs> Nintendo 8-bit was my, my introduction to video games, but the Sega Mega Drive was the first console I could call my own. So it, it has a special place for me. But before we go into any of that, before we, we talk about any of that topic, I would love for you to please just introduce yourself, talk about who you are, what's your name, and just a quick introduction for everyone listening to this. Yeah. So um, I think most people in the, the furry community call me Amaru. Uh, the full name is Ao Neko Amaru, which is um, partly based on my one of my first names. Could mean the blue cat Amaru, could mean what remains is blue. Um, but uh, Amaru or Neko, um, usually the arcade cats. Uh, this last um, since 2014, I've been uh, managing the arcade room at Nordic Fastcon, um, which is I've, I've been basically bringing uh, my, my growing collection of games that I started collecting in the 90s, and uh, it's been growing kind of according to to the attendees' interests and us experimenting with what works as an arcade room at a furry convention. Okay. Uh, there's been some uh, contributions from the attendees who've kind of all found that the, ar the arcade was really nice. The, the, we've been going for a kind of retro layout and uh, they've been contributing with some of their games thinking, oh, uh, I, I don't have the console for this anymore, but maybe you want this Common Encounter on the PlayStation or, or this game on the N64. And it's kind of been growing according to that with the years. Uh, we started uh, looking a bit more into arcade sticks and all that, and that kind of got me even deeper down the rabbit hole for both the Sega Saturn, Dreamcast, and a bunch of other consoles. So, so it's been that kind of my uh, my guideline to how how I wanted to also grow the collection for for the attendees. Uh, so I wouldn't call myself a collector of video games. It's more kind of an interactive museum. I'm 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 uh, games I've been purchasing since kind of maybe the. The, the 90s, but mostly now, according to the, uh, along with the convention, have been 
trying to figure out games that are fun to play with friends, uh, not to just have them on shelves, but to actually make good use of them. Because I, as I've seen I, I, over the years, and even the decades, is that all this stuff has like an expiration date. Some of them are way past their expiration date and need a lot of tough love and care to kind of make them still work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's good if people can get some more enrollment and experience and good memories of them while they're still working and before everything turns digital. So, yeah. What do you find um, people turn to most in the arcade uh, at the convention? Do you find them to turn mostly to modern stuff, like modern fighting games, or is the love still there for, for the classics? I'd say... When it comes to what brings, there's different kinds of crowds. I've noticed the there's always going to be a big interest in the latest fighting games. I think there's always the classics of Street Fighter, and mostly Tekken has been a big thing at Nordic Falcon these last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to experiment with a few other kinds of games, like newer titles. Um, but I, I think it's like if you've learned how to play a Tekken back in the 90s or even the early 2000s, you kind of ha- you still remember how to play even like a, a Ryu or a uh, or, or Kazuya from the Street Fighter Tekken, attack. And it's kind of, it's easier getting back into that if there's a new number attached to it. You just know how to play the character. And I think those those games have kind of kept to that formula. So it's easy. It's comfort food in a way, um, just refined techniques. So those fighting games tend to be very popular. Um, other than that, I think a lot of people, those who stay longer periods at some of the stations, usually find the game they were playing in their childhood, either on by themselves or with siblings their parents and uh, they kind of just get stuck there again finding this game at a place where they wouldn't they wouldn't expect usually finding a i mean beyond the mario 64 we have some really odd games on the master system and other other consoles where people are just so happy to find them there play them a bit and then bring friends over to see like oh this is this is like my childhood and mm-hmm. and they just sit there sometimes they just sit there for like i mean as long as the arcade is open until midnight usually and <laughs> way beyond if they could all right so the arcade isn't just you know, like multiplayer games, fighting games, or or light gun games. You have single player stuff, and you have the master system. You have eight bit, then I guess as well. I'm asking because I mean, uh, I've never been there. I've never been to any convention ever, and I'm hoping that that will change soon. And I found out about arcade rooms and, con- and conventions just you know a couple of months ago. <laughs> Yeah, I've been, I've been before the furry conventions, I was helping out at anime conventions mm-hmm. and we were holding kind of video game rooms and we, we did what we could back then. I, I remember I, I used to set up um, very improvised arcade corners with a bunch of PSPs connected next to each other with all all the kind of, um, all the old games you could imagine on those systems back then. Mm-hmm. And the Dreamcast was also a classic then. I, I know a lot of people used to bring the GameCube back then also. All the consoles with multiple controls were really popular. So the Dreamcast and GameCube are obviously staples of those and the N64. And I think back then there was a lot of Halo gaming also on the Xboxes. But um, at furry conventions, I can't say I have any experience of any other furry convention than Nordic Foscon. I'm hearing a lot of, of how it's handled at other conventions. I know that finding arcades occasionally can be a, can be a classic. Um, we started branching a bit more into uh, real arcade cabinets as well, besides the, the retro consoles. Uh, these last few years, when we've had uh, we've had contact with people who could help us with getting some arcade cabinets uh, into the convention, I do have an arcade cabinet myself. Um, but I mean, it, it obviously, it takes a lot of space, and it's harder to kind of all get all those machines all the way up to the convention. 
So ideally, we find a partner next to the convention where we can kind of rent some of these extras machines. Uh, we would all love to have a dance dance revolution at home, but it takes a heck of a lot of space. Um, but so, so yeah, the, the the concept with the arcade has kind of grown into. I had this memory of back in the eighties, going into like Olens and a few other big stores in Sweden, mm-hmm. where they they used to cover the walls with the packaging of games. So it felt like you were seeing all the packages and you were playing the games. And they had those arcade cabinets where they put Nintendo cartridges into like a multi-slot system. Uh, so it felt kind of like smaller arcades. And I tried to kind of recreate that that kind of secondhand um, retro store feeling. Uh, kind of as all of those disappeared from Sweden. I, I didn't experience the arcades in Sweden in the 90s. Mm-hmm. I experienced them in France. It was kind of different. But I think like the, the experience I have from the, the retro stores going there picking up packages, seeing the man, reading the manuals, kind of looking around the cartridges. Sometimes that's, it's kind of like how you would watch TV series on Netflix nowadays, you just browse. And that's part of the experience we try to create at the arcade, at, at least at Nordic Foscom, where we put uh, all, all those Master System, Mega Drive, Super Nintendo boxes on the tables, and people kind of just get to pick and choose, read manuals, and kind of smell the old cardboard and plastic. Mm-hmm put them in the consoles. I, th- I think you've, you've mentioned this in a few previous podcasts as well, like the, the physicality of having a system in front of you, holding a cartridge, it, it gives a bit of an extra shine to the experience rather than just choosing a game from a menu. Exactly. It's it's such a... Like having uh, having the Game Pass on, on Series X, it really has made me feel like I have all these games in front of me and I feel nothing in playing them. I... I just don't have that physical connection to them. And like in buying all these old games for my Sega corner, a lot of them are games that I've already have digital. And, you know, the benefits are there for digital games, of course. But there's just something so special in holding holding that cover in your hand, opening it up, putting the disc in, hearing that console reading the disc, especially the Dreamcast, because <laughs> my God, that thing makes a lot of sound. Oh. Yeah, it, it, it blows. It, 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 it's part of it. It's just part of the experience. And it's just, it's not nostalgia. I refuse to say it's nostalgia because it's just part of the whole experience. It just, I don't know, it, it engrosses you. It, it creates just an atmosphere that I feel like is lost. That's, that's one yeah. of the reasons why I feel so happy in, in buying the Sega Saturn and playing it for the first time. It, there's just something special, like so. This is the Sega Saturn controller, and this is how the cover looked like. Oh my God, are these the manuals? And <laughs> seeing that console boot up and seeing the Sega Saturn logo every single time, like you used to do when you put on the PlayStation One, and you would hear that beautiful melody. Yeah, <laughs> I refuse to say it's nostalgia. Damn it! There's just something special about it. It was but it was I, an experience. I think I've been kind of. Drawing a parallel with a few of the games, I mean, I haven't gotten many games that are collector's editions that that are kind of a classic nowadays um, that come with those extra manuals, statuettes and like collector's trinkets and all. And and I think getting a game with a cartridge and a manual always feels kind of, it's more of an investment into Mm -hmm. the the, the game itself. And you get all that, that, that physicality, something you can display on a shelf. You can hold the manual, you can read the manual, you can feel the manual, you can feel the packaging, the work that's been put into that. It's, I mean, it's it's kind of like, um, what do you call it, v- vinyl shivo? I forget the word in English. But sure, like, vinyl records. 
Yeah, vinyl records. Yeah, um, like the, the 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 box of it, like the artwork. Um, that that in itself is a piece of display. It's something you can kind of show that you you have this. You can have it on your walls. It, it becomes a part of the of the experience of of a uh, kind of like if you would be getting a T-shirt with every game you purchase, then you would be wearing it probably. So yes. you kind of have more of a, of that presence that now you're taking the game out of this display set and putting it into the system rather than just choosing it from the list. So it kind of adds a that collector's edition feel to all the small purchases you get, even from I mean. Obviously, a lot of games, especially the cartridge one, are a bit harder to find with the box around. So CD games, I think, are, are easier to find with the manual. Uh, that's always a struggle that I had with Nintendo consoles. But Sega consoles, damn, that, that plastic holds holds well, at least for the, the those boxes for the Mega Drive. And this, well, okay, Sega Saturn was most of the European ones had a had that weird box with the plastic and the cardboard. That those are a bit more sensitive, I guess the it's funny that you say that because when i when i first got my mega drive uh the first couple of games they weren't um let's say they weren't pristine quality <laughs> as in they weren't really bought directly from the store mm-hmm. so i would have like my first games were sonic 2 uh tennis they what was the full title Day, davis cup tennis i think it's something like that i have it on the shelf and Elite Serien, which is Swedish hockey. So it's <laughs> it's NHL 95, but the Swedish version of it. So it's just nice. Swedish teams. The cover <laughs> for that box was totally destroyed with teeth marks. <laughs> I don't know if the previous <laughs> owner had a dog which just completely opened up the corner of it. Or the guy who had the game got so pissed off at the game that he would just bite into it but i would have to explain every single time for people like look i did not bite this but my point is that that thing it's the same i have the same cover since i was a little kid and everything still works (laughs) i it's the durability of that and compare that to an n64 box if you just sneeze at it it gets bent and it's so freaking annoying they're so sensitive yeah. yeah yeah even if yeah i mean unless you manage to keep them pristine you wouldn't stack even a bunch of boxes if like the super nintendo i think because they they never really stack entirely perfectly well they can start to wobble a bit mm-hmm. and uh unless you have all the cardboard patch catching on the inside no but instead the, the sega games they used to have that kind of vhs click when you yes. put the cartridge inside them almost satisfying <laughs> But again, it has to do with the thing of the experience of when you're opening it up, it, it, you're just preparing yourself mentally, especially if you're playing a game like The Adventures of Batman and Robin, which still to this day keeps kicking my ass. <laughs> and trust me, I tried like a week ago. Again, I'm 32 years old and I still can't beat that damn game. <laughs> but just like opening it and hearing that click, it's it's one of those like, <sighs> okay, here we go. And well, speaking about Sega, uh, like I've explained, the Mega Drive was my my baby, and I have so many fond memories. But the Sega Saturn is something new for me, and I'm still because the Saturn for me was like why why would I invest money into the Saturn? I have the PlayStation, and I'm I'm talking like fifteen 
15 years back, I would think like this. Like, it, there's nothing really official for it that I care about, and there's not even a Sonic game. Eh, who cares? It wasn't until recently when I was start watching this YouTuber by the name Sega Lord X. Uh, <laughs> yeah. he, and he's just, every video he does, he's talking so many good things about the Sega Saturn. And I'm laughing at, like, the first episode. I was like, it's the Sega Saturn. What, it has two games? But... Wow, I was wrong. The more <laughs> videos I started watching, I was like, oh my God, this, this this console is amazing. And I'm looking, I'm looking at more videos and more videos, and this this funny song where this guy starts singing Daytona starts playing in yeah. one of his reviews, and I'm like, I have to play this game. <laughs> Daytona USA. I've never heard of it. And even though I, I would consider myself a Sega Sega fan, and I have been ever since I was a little kid. It wasn't until now, recently, I've discovered I've missed out on so many franchises from Sega. It's crazy. I've never played Golden Axe, even though I'm a beat 'em up fan. I only recently discovered Streets of Rage, which blows my mind because it's amazing, except the third game, which broke me. <laughs> uh, Afterburner, I always thought like Afterburner, eh, it's a game that you play for five minutes, but the music, oh god, the music, it's so good. Um, House of the Dead, I've always been a, a fan of House of the Dead, but my, my point is that um, there were so many franchises, like Shinobi is something I never thought was was anything interesting until I actually started looking at the games, like for real, especially the third game, I was like, this, this... I'm looking at the third game and I'm immediately going, this is something I should have played a long time ago for the Mega Drive. This is some, why haven't I played this game? And that's what made me buy the Saturn. That's what made me um, plug in the Sega Mega Drive. It's this combination of nostalgia and I know for a fact there are so many things I've missed out on. And so far the Sega Saturn is... I, I, I love it. I, I seriously, I'm a, I am in love with it. The graphics, yeah. the the Virtua Fighter, for heaven's sake, was something I never considered anything fun because I played the fourth one. I'm playing the first one and I'm having the time of my life. Yeah, I think there was. Uh, I think Virtua Fighter one of those interesting kind of examples of, uh, I think they had the good basics at the beginning. It was a bit rough, but even like there's a, a clean aesthetic in, in those simple polygons from the first versions. But the gameplay was pretty simple. And then then that uh, like games had to look even better. Mm -hmm. And I think they kind of lost themselves. The third one started implementing um, multi-level multi uh, floors on, on, on stages. Mm -hmm. And after that, I think... I think they, they they were in a race with Dead or Alive and a few other games to try to look nicer, and that was also the point where Sega kind of lost touch with uh, with a few of their franchises. Um, I mean, obviously, there's that part where after the Dreamcast, uh, there was a shift in how they were developing games and kind of putting a few, a few of the more experimental Mega Drive and Sega Saturn IPs were put to rest for them to try to push the more popular of their IPs to the PlayStation Two. That also gave us a, a few interesting games, but uh, a few franchises really had the good roots, simple, uh, functional on the, the Mega Drive and the Sega Saturn. 
and uh, we are still missing. There's a few, there's a few good, good amount of classics that we still haven't seen coming back from from those days to, on to newer systems, and we're still waiting for like things like uh, yeah, we talked about a few few weeks ago about uh, House of the Dead finally getting a remake on uh, new systems, and that's exciting. And there's a few other titles uh, in the Sega collection that we would love to see kind of uh, getting uh, getting some love again. Yes, they have so many of them. I've uh, one game that I've um, been super hyped trying for the first time ever is the RPG Skies of Arcadia. Oh, lovely! I know nothing about it except for one song, and I think it's called Rogue's Landing. I think <laughs> it's called that, and I I love it. <laughs> but that's literally the only thing I know of that game, and I can't wait until I can afford buying it because it ain't cheap. Yeah. But, I think that's one of the bigger problems with, uh, with with investing in well, then again, cartridge is also an issue itself. But uh, the, U- the the European market for Sega Saturn games has been going up in price a bit uh, this last decade. Partly, uh, I mean, it, it's thanks and partly the fault of Sega Lord X and other fantastic YouTubers who are making more people aware of all the classics mm-hmm. and. That has driven some more interest into finding those games. And sadly, European versions of those games have not been produced as as big quantities well enough as the US and Japanese versions. So they've uh, they've been uh, harder to find at a decent price. It's expensive for some of those classics to be be, like start being a a Sega Saturn collector nowadays, but they're, they're always around. Yes, and that brings me to a point um, to which you gave me a recommendation of buying imports. And I said that, mm, I know that's the right thing to do, but I know I won't do it. And then I told you, and I will explain to you why when the timing is right. And I feel now's the perfect time to do it because on my podcast, at least I try to, since it's called The Strange Perspective, I know very well that my perspective, my opinion on things are, one, not popular, and two, most people would go, why why are you like this? Why would you do this? Why would you think like this? And what I'm about to tell you is definitely one of those, why would you think like this? And here's the thing. When I buy imports of games, I feel like I don't own them. And a good example is the Sonic games. So I bought Sonic Rush for the DS here in Sweden. And then I bought Sonic Rush Adventure when I was in the States. The DS could still play it. I, I like the, the game works perfectly fine. But when I put them on the shelf and I notice that the cover is different, I immediately go, yeah, I don't own that game. When it's not part, when it's not a PAL uh, cover or letters or just the, the design of it, my brain just goes, yeah, no, you don't own it. And the only time I can allow myself to not think like that is when a game hasn't been released in, in PAL forms, like uh, Persona 1 and 2 for the PlayStation. I bought those games when I, were in, when I was in Japan. And even then, I was like, I should do this. I have to do this. I don't have that much of a choice unless I buy the American one, which is both censored and altered. So I want the original. But sometimes when I look at them, I go, "Mm, 
Do I really own them? And let me be perfectly clear here. I am saying my own collection, how I work with my own collection, I am not saying this applies to anyone else. This is 100% just me. So that's... I think I can I can see some 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 parallel in that uh, since I do have quite a mixed collection of games from states Japan and Europe mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. even just looking at the PlayStation 1 games even all those who are just PAL games I've noticed these differences in how the boxes are made the Saturn for some some reason in Europe went for that big uh, cardboard outer shell like the big rectangular standing and it looks really nice when you have all of those next to each other mm-hmm. but yeah the Japanese model kind of followed more along the way of the Famicom and some others where the, the different uh, publishers had their own way of having uh, double or single boxes and different sizes different kind of textures even on the boxes uh, so they're very very different the US import games they kind of all follow the same Kind of much bigger plastic box set that's okay. also that also breaks a lot easier so that those are harder to uh to find in the cor- correct uh, condition yeah do you, how how wrong do you feel my opinion is with the whole if i buy an import i don't actually own the game mm. don't hold back because that just makes it a better <laughs> podcast episode <laughs> see no so in, in my case it's a bit complicated when it comes to the, the the Sega Saturn in particular because when I started collecting Sega Saturn games was back in the back in the mid 90s mm-hmm. um for some reason when all my friends went from the Super Nintendo and the the Mega Drive to the PlayStation I, I went with the Sega Saturn and so I was always that one apart uh, all the others were playing their Tekkens and all the all the popular games and I, I was I was kind of related to having that weird console that still had some few interesting games occasionally. So I still had an occasion to bring it. I was the only one in that scenario having the Sega Saturn. But somehow, as I lived on the south coast of France, and there was a thing with lots of Japanese people getting married on the south coast. So they were coming for for the, the summer period, getting married. And it seems that a lot of their kids were getting rid of their Japanese games and exchanging them for European games in in the retail, the, the secondhand stores. So I got my hands really early there uh, in the nineties on on a bunch of Japanese games, both for like Super Nintendo, the Saturn Mega Drive, and all that the stores had just gotten exchanged European games for, and they, they couldn't sell them for normal price because no, very few people had import cartridges or adapters. So I ended up having a very blended collection of Sega Saturn games, and very early on using the action replay for that console to play those import games. Um, and I didn't have so much of an economy back then, so I kind of figured out, oh, I, I, the, this game in Japanese, uh, as soon as I got beyond like j- learning the basis of, basics of Japanese to understand save and load for role-playing games, and then I discovered that most of the games used English, um, but just wrote it in that, that, that uh, alphabet that just kind of translates it phonetically. Mm-hmm. And... I realized it was a it was a convenient way for me, at least for most of the arcade games, to get my hands on really odd games that were, were hadn't actually been even released on the PlayStation. So for me, I, I kind of discovered that the Japanese import on the Sega Saturn were both cheap for me to get back then, and were also games that felt very like arcade games and that weren't being released on the PlayStation either. Um, uh, lots of weird games like the 
the, the Twindy games, some were Japanese uh, Dragon Ball games. Um, uh, so those, obviously there's the fighting, fighting Vipers and all that one was released in European, but like the Japanese version comes with Pepsi Man. Um, uh, Galaxy Fights that I found uh, that was uh, there, there were a few Neo Geo games and back then Neo Geo was starting to release a few Neo Geo games on the Neo Geo CD but on the Saturn you could get the Japanese those games in, in Japanese and, and that was also pretty awesome uh, all playing on the fact mostly that the Saturn was good at 2D games so I think all that kind of formed me to, 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 to like Japanese games offering me that slice of arcade action that I was not getting on the PlayStation, yeah. but when it came to European games, those—I mean, those are all. There's a good amount of classic, all the Daytona USA's, uh, Die Hard arcade, Sega Rally. Most of the big, big titles we remember, the Sega Saturn IV, uh, were released in European, and back then they weren't costing a heck of a lot like they do nowadays. Yeah. So that, that that kind of made me f- figure out that uh, my, I could build my collection of Japanese games for those kinds of arcade experiences and for the more kind of common European experiences that were available, that's where I was finding them. Because I think Japanese people weren't kind of getting rid of their those kind of classic games here in Europe because it's more the other games. I never really figured out how that happened, but that's kind of what got me really early on into Famicom, like collecting Super Famicom games and Sega Saturn games. Dreamcast, at that point, I think it was kind of, it came a bit too late. And then I came back to Sweden in early 2000. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of what what formed my 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 weird odd collection of Japanese games, and, and the friends were loving some of those games. Like I got Dead or Alive on the Sega Saturn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't even figure out if that game was ever released in European, but I got in uh, or, or I got the Japanese version of it on the on the Sega Saturn, uh, and that one was much appreciated by the friends who were still ap- loving all their Tekken's, obviously. But uh, so there, there were some odd games. Uh, I realized like a decade after that. All the all the import games. That's another aspect, I guess. All the import games running on the Sega Saturn do, do not exactly run at the frequency they should be running at. So you get occasionally some some uh, unsync with the audio uh, or game running a bit slower or faster than it should. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's how I used to play my games until I got a Japanese Sega Saturn as well. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. Why? I mean, if you have that that summer connection with it. I, I can't even, not only can I not relate to it, but it's something that I wish I could relate to. And But the whole yeah. thing of when you said that you're the one who had that odd console that when everyone else went for one <laughs> thing, you went for the other. That was basically my story with the Mega Drive. Everyone loved the Super Nintendo. I had my Mega Drive. <laughs> it wasn't until I fell into peer pressure and I was like, what is this PlayStation and why does everyone want it? I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I had a few, a few, a few people in in the class in, in school even who occasionally purchased a Sega Saturn just for that one game. Where everybody was started starting to talk about Panzer Dragoon Saga on the Sega Saturn, and then someone just came in, purchased a Sega Saturn and that game that just had gotten released, played it, and then sold it back to the store again. So there were wow. obviously a few, a few systems that were like console sellers, but. Then I mean the consoles were getting resold afterwards because yeah now they play the game they can resell the console. <laughs> there was a wild time, but uh, uh, a few games still piqued the interest of people both on the yeah obviously the Mega Drive and the Sega Saturn. Is that a game that you would recommend for someone who's never played it? Because I've never played Panzer Dragoon. Uh, so Saga is very different from the regular yeah, Panzer Dragoon. Yeah, it's the RPG one, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it has a fantastic soundtrack. 
it um, it has it's an interesting kind of world exploration which combines kind of flying around environments. So it can be very zen. My friends used to 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 call it a zen RPG in the sense that like the soundtrack was so soothing, kind of like Echo the Dolphin at times. And you you fly around environments, and then suddenly the screen flashes, and you're fighting enemies. And there's there's an interesting strategy as to how you navigate your dragon around, uh, morph it to get specific effects. So it looks nice. Um, it's on four discs. Uh, there's an interesting world building and characters to interact with. Um, but getting those four discs in box uh, is very expensive nowadays. Uh, at least if you want to play the the, the English versions. So I would say it's uh, it's an interesting experience. I, I can't see it being released again, at least within the fi- next five years. I, I don't see that Sega finds it. In, oh, although I wonder who is actually owning the the license for that one. It's it's an odd one. I know the Panzer Dragon Auto kind of came afterwards with the Xbox and and the rights. Sega kind of still holds most of those rights. But it's it's an odd game. Maybe if they made a remake again. It's one of those where we're kind of hoping that now that House of the Dead and a few other titles are being experimented with, they might push that. But they're mostly focusing on arcade experiences nowadays. And Panzer Dragoon is a bit too much text and, and environments to rework for just a, 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 a re-release nowadays. Uh, so it's it's a good game. If you can find it at a decent price, if if you if you like uh, uh, it's it's kind of turn-based, I guess. Uh, it's, there's an interesting navigation. Definitely a good story um, and some some nice cutscenes. Uh, I really did enjoy it. I don't know if I would try to repurchase it nowadays at the price it goes for around. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, for just the aesthetic and the, the the music, I would say getting getting hold of Panzer Dragon Zwei, which is more of a like on race shooter, mm-hmm. uh, it is close enough, I would say. In your personal opinion, every time Sega re-releases something, it's mostly always the Mega Drive, and I understand why. <laughs> but with the success of, you know, everyone doing like mini consoles, and Sega even doing the Mega Drive Mini, why do you personally feel like they haven't done a Dreamcast Mini? Yeah. Um... I think we're getting to that point, even with the the Nintendo Minis, mm-hmm. um, where we're kind of realizing that I think the, part of the problem is the fact that uh, the 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 Dreamcast and the N sixty four were all, uh, very popular for having four controllers. So how how are they trying to tackle that? Okay. Um, because the I think like the Super Nintendo Mini was sold with both controllers the nintendo mini was initially sold with only one controller and you had to purchase the extra one and that was kind of like people were kind of raging about having to at least on the on the european and american one you had to purchase that extra controller for it whereas the the famicom mini came with both the controllers well obviously because they were kind of built into the console Mm -hmm. um so they could just sell it with two controllers with it and you'd have to purchase two extra controllers but then would they focus the library on games that are mostly for four player or two player? Or where do they kind of fit fit the? How, how do they split the, the the library on those? They should definitely be able to do Dreamcast, I think, because it wasn't that complicated as well. I'm not, I'm not an expert on that one, so I'm not going to say anything. I don't really know, but I've seen the emulation of it nowadays. I would guess works better. It was Windows. I'm guessing CE, if I recall. Yeah, so 
I'm guessing there there are there would be ways for even if I don't know if Microsoft would be working on how, how that part. Although I, I, from what I recall, very few games were actually using that um, that CE support. Um, but many of those games were also arcade games. Um, so I'm guessing there's some kind of layer of compatibility as to how they would be able to make those run. So they could be focusing mostly on those shooters, those games that technically are easier to port from the arcade versions and just making those, like making more of a Naomi board emulator rather than just Dreamcast. Mm-hmm. Although that would be kind of a way around it. But Dreamcast, yeah, it feels like it. there's a bunch, there's a good amount of games on it that they, they've already released, again, in some format for the PSP. I'm thinking of like Power Stone, uh, the Power Stone collection. And uh, even a crazy taxi. There were a bunch of Dreamcast games that were actually released on the on the PSP. So if that one can can make it, I don't know if if that would be re- finding a way to emulate the old games or re- remaking them in a way. Um, ideally, we would want the the classic just emulated in a console. Um, yeah, I, I would really love that. I'm just a bit worried about the, the that aspect of four controllers. Uh, if if it means they they feel that. Uh, do they fill it with 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 they would people really invest in a console that would be more expensive because they package it with four controllers because most of the games are for four player or do they make like a library of half of it is mostly for one or two players and then there's those extra controllers for those extra games but you have to purchase them on the side uh what happens then if they have to choose how many role playing games they are going to put in it because there there are definitely role playing games you want on that Dreamcast mini I can see the dilemma for them in trying to figure that out. It's like they, they released recently a, um, what do you call it? It's, it's one of the, um, the, the Sega arcade systems. It's like a mini arcade cabinet. It does come with a version of, I think, Virtua Fighter 1. And then it comes with a few uh, Mega Drive games, but like the, the arcade versions. Uh, and that one I know already there was some, some issue, like people thinking that the 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 games they had chosen for that collection uh, were not the games they would have gone for if it came to arcade sega games it's hard to make people happy um and uh, it feels it's easier for them to fill a console with a few roms uh, than when you get to the especially the gd roms of the dreamcast that are uh, sometimes i mean there are games like um what is it called uh, that that shooter games where you alternate between black and white I forgot what that one was called. Ikaruga. Um, and that one, like the file size of that one is like 10 megabits compressed. So it was very little actually making it run because mo- uh, none of the audio was CD-based. But there are other games like Skies of Arcadia that is like two full GD-ROMs with all the all the music, all the environments, all the, all the 3D. Uh, so it's a bit harder uh, for that. I mean, even compared to the N64, if they made a mini, the games are kind of still decent size when you haven't compressed, but for the Dreamcast, that that's when they were starting to push like the file size a bit higher. Would you think that it's easier to do a Dreamcast Mini than an N64 Mini? I think an N64 Mini would be. Oh, my experience is that N64 is easier to. Uh, I've had I've had better luck um, uh, getting the same experience in an emulated environment for N64 games than for Dreamcast games. Um, 
not there's not like one emulator working for all the games, but there's like different configurations for different games. Mm-hmm. Dreamcast is getting there. I've been surprised actually by how well Sega Saturn and Dreamcast emulation has has evolved these these last five years at least. Um, so it's getting there. Maybe it's going to continue at the same pace and and actually surprise me even more. That would be nice. Um, So I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing N64 is is closer on the way. Sega is doing something a bit different with their their Game Game Gear Mini that's not coming here for a bit, I think. Um, people have been liking the um, the Mega Drive Mini definitely. Uh, although I would have liked us to get the those extra pieces of accessories they were selling for the the deluxe version in Japan that got like the the the, the whole stand with the Sega CD underneath and the cartridge and the 32x uh, adapter no on top. I had they did that. Uh, they, they had a nice collector. So you got all the cartridges for the the games included, at least the Japanese games. So like mini cartridges, and you had the different bits of pieces you could assemble to it. So it looks like a mega CD tower with the 32x on top. And the cartridge of your choice placed in the 32x. It's glorious. And we don't get that. But and, and that's partly why I'm seeing that okay, they managed to push out the Mega Drive Mini, which was really good. Um, mm-hmm. but it seems that we haven't gotten anything from from that kind of range after that Mega Drive Mini. There were a few other Sega products that were released. Um whereas Nintendo, I think, is more established with, somehow outside of Japan when it comes to pushing out those those mini products there's definitely an interest in getting i think there's more people in general who would be interested in getting an n64 outside of japan uh, like an n64 mini Mm -hmm. than overall people who would be interested in getting a dreamcast mini although i i I know tons of people who would love a dreamcast mini i just like kind of see the nostalgia within people outside of japan most people remember the n64 whereas dreamcast i mean it's it's us people who have kind of discovered those systems that really really find all those 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 classic games but i think the problem there is also that more of those games were not technically sega games compared as to the a good amount of the classics remember from the n64 were still are still kind of owned by Nintendo, even if a good amount of them are now rare games, mm-hmm. which might be what what would be the only issue for the Nintendo 64 Mini is them managing to still um, get, use the rights for those games. Although Nintendo and Microsoft have been working together a lot these last few years, from what we noticed. Yeah, I mean that was like one of the best things I knew about the Banjo Kazooie thing on Smash. Don't get me wrong, yeah. I love Banjo Kazooie, and I, I flipped <laughs> when they were announced. <laughs> but it also it was also one of those like, look, they're they're cooperating. This is great. This is great. Like, imagine the doors this can open. Yeah, but I mean, we'll see. It's it's a, it's an interesting time. If when it comes back to Sega, Lord knows there's so many like RPG franchises that I missed, and I mentioned one already, which is Skies of Arcadia. What would you personally top rank higher? And I ask this as someone who has not played any of these games. Fantasy Star 1 to 4, so the Master System, Sega Mega Drive, mm-hmm. or Skies of Arcadia. If you, would, if you would tell me, all right, Danny, you, get to, like, you can only afford one game right now. Would you recommend Fantasy Star or would you recommend Skies of Arcadia? Mm, so are we talking like getting getting uh, or just picking one of the Fantasy Star games yes compared to Skies of Arcadia because yeah obviously all of them even individually is going to be pretty expensive 
at least in cartridge format. So I would um, I would lean most for uh, toward Fantasy Star One since I'm one of those. Even though the games aren't, I don't know if they are, but let's say in case of Final Fantasy, they're not directly connected. They're not direct sequels. I still mm-hmm. want to go one, two, three, four, because I, I yeah, want I, would... I, I want to evolve with the franchise, graphics and sounds and all of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the first one is a bit rough, but it did put the, the basics of the series. The, the the this, I think in if if you did see a future of you wanting to get the other ones afterwards, mm-hmm. then probably I would say Fantasy Star would be a fun fun way of kind of going through it because. You get a better appreciation for the new mechanics mm-hmm. and the new engines in the sequels of that one, and so you have more to look forward to if you like the first one. Um, if you had to choose only one, I would say maybe. Well, I know a lot of people like the fourth one and the second one. Uh, there is some good mechanics being put, uh, kind of the genealogy and and how you kind of level up the characters in the later games. Um, so that's a fun series to get invested in. Uh, Skies of Arcadia, obviously, there's only Skies of Arcadia by itself on Dreamcast, although there's also that GameCube version. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the Dreamcast, you do have that fun gimmick of being able to use the, the VMU for yes, some of I, the mini games on the side. Every time. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's only a pain to keep the batteries working on those nowadays. I have a modified VMU just to kind of have an external battery pack connected to it. Otherwise, it just beeps every time you boot up the system. But yeah, that's part of the charm, I guess. <laughs> but uh, Skies of Arcadia was a really nice experience by itself. Um, uh, there, there's uh, obviously being a 3D game, it offers something very different from the other one. Absolutely. But I think at, at, at the end of the line, Skies of Arcadia could see it coming out again on Switch and other systems in the near future. Um, whereas uh, Fantasy Star, I, I, it's been released on so many systems. I think the price for those on on, on retro shelves are, isn't as high as it used to be. Obviously, I think Fantasy Star 4 is still kind of high there in the list. Um, but there's so much to look forward to afterwards once you've started playing the Fantasy Stars, especially those who actually had kind of a, a role-play story from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe those make it suddenly fun to play the Fantasy Star online games afterwards. Um, the, the series never really kind of got back to the to its story roots. There were a few, I think there was one kind of single-player single story based on the on the DS, I think. And, and I did love the, um, the ones that were released on the PlayStation 2 and I think even GameCube and Xbox afterwards, the, the Fantasy Star... I forgot what it was called. There was like two of them that could be played online, but otherwise they had a single player story as well. That was even presented like an anime with an intro and uh, like a recap of the previous episodes and mm-hmm. like spoiler for the next chapter. Those were actually pretty nice. But um, like the, the base classic kind of classic sci-fi fantasy story, that's what you got in the in fantasy stuff one to four. And yeah, I, I would say maybe rather focus on those uh, Skies of Arcadia is. I, 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 f- I feel that one is coming out again in some form of remake. Um, yeah. All right. My friend, we've been talking for 40, 47 minutes. <laughs> and I think, and I, we've tackled the things I've wanted to tackle with you. Not only are you very knowledgeable in this, you are a pleasure to listen to <laughs> because you, once, you, once you, I get you rolling, you don't stop, and those are the type of guests that I want. You were fantastic. <laughs> so I humbly say thank you so much for taking your time for this. This was 
absolute pleasure to do. And I would love to have you back on my podcast. Yeah, with pleasure. Before we end, one final question. I've asked this before, but I want to ask it again on my podcast because I want it recorded. If I manage to get my butt to NFC and I go to the arcade, can I expect House of the Dead too? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Uh, I know we have it at least on the, was it the Dreamcast. Mm-hmm. And who knows? We might have it on an arcade cabinet. Um, but uh, otherwise, we, we have, I think we have most of the House of the Dead, even the odd ones with 3D glasses and uh, w- wiggle sticks and everything. Oh, God. If there ever was a reason to go to NFC, <laughs> I've had so <laughs> many reasons, and now you just gave me another one. Amigos, you hear the music playing in the background. Thank you so much, Neko, for everything. Is there anything else you want to you wanna promote? Uh, your Twitter handle? Anything at all that, that you want to get out there? How can people reach you? Uh, just in general, um, I hope to see you at uh, the next physical Nordic Fuzzcon at the arcade rooms. You know where to find me. And mm-hmm. uh, the, I hope you will find uh, your, your childhood or, or new games to, to delve in. I'm I'm going to love it. I, I know I will. I have I have the most stupid smile on my face right now. Just a thought of it. Thank you so much. And amigos, I'll see you in the next one. Adios. Yeah.